Okay, well, let's uh, get back into our discussion of the evangelical revival with George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley. We left off discussing the split over Calvinism. And just to review a little bit, Due to the influence of the Enlightenment in England and also in New England, but we'll talk more about that when we talk about Jonathan Edwards, there had been a major decline in the spirituality of both England and New England in terms of the spiritual climate. And even among the Puritans, even among the descendants of the Puritans, the dissenters and the nonconformists, and in America, the American Puritans, there was a great deal of apathy and lethargy that had crept into the church. That's exemplified in New England by the halfway covenant of Solomon Stoddard. It's exemplified in England proper by just the state of the Anglican church at this time where pastors were more interested in reason and science and recreation, again, the fruit of Enlightenment rationalism and Romanticism, and those things had come to really characterize Christianity. Christianity, English Christianity, had uh, largely exchanged the biblical gospel due to the anti-supernatural bias of the Enlightenment for a purely moralistic approach to the Bible. The Bible was almost seen as a collection of good ethical precepts, almost like an, Aesop, uh, an Aesop's fables kind of approach, that there's a lot of good moral information here, but nobody takes the historical or supernatural details in Scripture. No one wanted to take those at face value. That will really be articulated and packaged in theological liberalism in German theology, something that we're going to discuss later. But in terms of the practical implications of that moralistic theology, Anglicanism had essentially begun to develop a gospel that was characterized by, I suppose, a works righteousness type of system. And, and John and Charles Wesley grew up in that system. George Whitfield grew up in that system. And as we discussed on Tuesday, when they went to Oxford for their university training, they started a club that was committed to that kind of thinking, the holy club, which was the idea that we are going to be holy externally. We are going to discipline ourselves in terms of these spiritual exercises and as a result of this extreme asceticism almost, this extreme attempt at self-holiness, self-righteousness, that we are going to somehow earn favor in the eyes of God. And, and we see parallels almost with what had happened 200 years earlier with Martin Luther, where Luther had tried to earn his own salvation through being righteous as a monk there in the monastery in Erfurt, here we have Charles and John Wesley. Charles was really the one that started the Holy Club. And then George Whitfield, who joins the Holy Club, all trying to earn God's favor through these extreme forms of self-discipline. So extreme that in Whitfield's case, his health is actually affected by the extreme measures to which he goes to try and please God through his external actions. This is a a logical outgrowth of the Anglican emphasis on moralism that even some of the Puritans, or at least the descendants of the Puritans, had fallen into during this time period. There's a growth of deism, there's a growth of secularism in 18th century society, and the church is trying to deal with all of this. It's in this context, then, that God, in His sovereign mercy, sees fit to reach down and save George Whitfield first. And remember, he does that by being exposed to this Puritan work by Henry Skugel called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, whereby Whitfield recognizes that he must be born again or he will face God's condemnation and wrath. And so it is an emphasis suddenly on that internal heart change. And then we have with John and Charles Wesley, three years later, that's in 1735 with George Whitfield. Now in 1738, we have the Wesley brothers, each of whom are influenced by the Moravians, the Moravians being influenced by the German pietists, 
pietism being the realization that it's not just head knowledge, but also heart transformation that God cares about. And we have Charles Wesley who is converted. He says for the first time in his life, he felt as though he had peace with God. Uh, I think that's indicative of the fact that he recognized that all of those works that he had uh, that he had attempted so diligently to try and earn God's favor on his own, he suddenly recognized, he knew all along that he had not earned peace with God. You can't earn peace with God. It's something that's a gift of grace. And for the first time in his life, he feels as if he is at peace with God. And then just a few days later, different circumstances, but John Wesley is attending a Moravian meeting where they're reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans, and he's hearing the gospel explained by Luther in that preface. And suddenly, John Wesley has something happen. I don't want to sound too mystical about it, but it's the supernatural work of the Spirit's regeneration of his heart. There's something internal that changes that is new, that he had never experienced before. Wesley articulates it this way. He says he felt his heart strangely warmed, but he will always subsequently look back on that date as his true conversion experience. And the evangelical revival then in England begins to emphasize the biblical gospel, biblical preaching, with a specific focus on the fact that you must be born again if you are to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it's the language of John 3, of Jesus and Nicodemus, that becomes the real emphasis of the evangelical revival. We call it the evangelical revival, again, because that word evangelical means gospel. It is a recovery of the biblical gospel now in the 18th century, just as we had a recovery of the biblical gospel in the 16th century. And in the same way that the Reformation re-emphasizes that we are saved through the work of Christ alone and that that work has an internal reality of regeneration as the Holy Spirit changes the sinner's heart and there is a new birth. That emphasis again characterizes the evangelical revival in England. We made the point on Tuesday, I think it's worth reiterating that when we're talking about revival at this time in church history, that these great evangelists who of course are instruments whom God uses. It's a work of God, not the ingenuity of these men. But these great evangelists are doing nothing more or less than preaching the biblical gospel and allowing the Spirit of God to do the work in the hearts of the hearers. There is no manipulation. There is no orchestration. There are no special mechanisms by which revival is being engineered. On the part of the preacher, those kinds of things will all come later at the end of the second great awakening, and we'll talk about those things. But when we think about revival today, we tend to think about you know, revival meetings where revival is planned and where you can do certain things to manipulate people's emotions to get them to respond. None of that stuff is happening at this point in church history. It is simply the preaching of God's word and people responding to the truth through the power and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And as I told you on Tuesday, again, I would emphasize to you that real revival. When we look at the history of revival in the church over 2,000 years of time, real revival always comes from the power of God through the preaching of His Word. It cannot be manipulated. It cannot be orchestrated. And when people try to manipulate revival, the results are always sometimes initially impressive numerically, but ultimately over the long run disastrous and devastating for those who are involved in those revival efforts. The decisionism of modern revivalism, where crusades see hundreds of people standing up and making decisions, and then they go back and do five-year studies and find that most of those people are no longer part of a church. That Most of those people, though they see that time as being the time they became a Christian, give no evidence in their lives of true heart transformation, is indicative of the of the shift that takes place during the Second Great Awakening, whereby uh, some of the human instruments begin to think that they can actually be catalysts for something that 
ought to be reserved as a work of God. So I just want to set that out there again, and we'll emphasize it more when we get to the Second Great Awakening. But I don't want you to leave this class being fooled into thinking that all of the evangelical trends that continually come along that tempt guys to think that numbers are the that numbers are somehow the measure of success historically that just doesn't pan out numbers are not the measure of success they're the world's measure of success but they're not god's measure of success faithfulness is and when we look back on the greatest names in scripture and in church history we always evaluate them on the basis of their faithfulness just as hebrews chapter 11 evaluates old testament saints on the basis of their faithfulness never on the basis of their immediate numeric success in terms of seeming influence uh, we'll talk more about that when we get to charles finney but I just want to emphasize that at this time in church history, when we're talking about the great revivals of Reformation and the evangelical revival, the Great Awakening in America, there is no secret to revival other than preaching the biblical gospel and trusting God to do a work in the hearts of the hearers. So don't be fooled into thinking that you can somehow manipulate God's work. All right. So some pictures here of John Wesley preaching. Wesley of uh, Whitfield actually was the first in 1739 to begin preaching outdoors. And when John Wesley saw the success of Whitfield's approach, he adopted that same approach. And so we have these students who at Oxford began to be called Methodists because of their strict method of seeking godliness. These Methodists now represent a budding new movement in England under the preaching of Whitfield and the preaching of Wesley. The Anglican system had restricted everything to local parishes, and so wherever you grew up, that's where you went to church, and whoever they assigned to be your pastor, that was your pastor in the local Anglican parish. But now we have kind of a breaking of that construct with Whitfield and Wesley going out into the woods, going wherever, standing up in villages, street corners, preaching in the open air. And they would preach to anyone and everyone who would listen to them. And as I told you on Tuesday, Wesley famously said, the world is my parish. That was not an egocentric way of saying I'm the world's pastor or something like that. It was simply a way of saying I'm not restricted to a local parish like many of these Anglican rectors are. Instead, I can go preach anywhere to anyone who will come and listen. And that made Methodist missions, Methodist evangelism very effective because these men went and preached, in some cases, to, cow to crowds of tens of thousands, Whitfield in particular, preaching to as many as 30,000 on, on different occasions. And we talked about Benjamin Franklin and, and the verification of some of those details on Tuesday. Yep, Josh. Sorry, are they like rogue pastors in the sense? Or are they actually Anglican? Are they, are they ordained and they're just going around preaching whatever they want? Or are they... Yeah, in some ways they sort of are rogue pastors. Uh, Whitfield is ordained as an Anglican priest, and I believe John Wesley was as well. So the, it's Anglican, and Methodism is an offshoot of Anglicanism, and yet as this movement gains momentum, it quickly becomes clear that this is going to be its own separate movement. And so when we move into American history, we don't speak of Methodism as some form of Episcopalianism. We speak of Methodism as its own distinct denomination. And, and the three major denominations that are going to shape the history of American Christianity from a Protestant perspective, not going to be Anglicanism. It's going to be Methodism, the Baptist denomination, and then the, for lack of a better term, the Puritan denomination, but which includes Congregationalism, but what we're going to call Presbyterianism as we move forward in American history. So those three are the big three when it comes to explaining the history of American Protestant Christianity. All right, well, as much as we like John Wesley, there are some issues that come from certain aspects of Wesley's theology. We talked on Tuesday about Wesley's Arminianism, 
Anglicanism in the 18th century was largely characterized by an Arminian influence. It had already begun to adopt that in the early 17th century under Charles I and William Laud, and we talked about that when the Puritans couldn't take it anymore and they came over in mass to Massachusetts. So Anglicanism in the 18th century is largely Arminian, and when Wesley becomes a Christian, he just maintains some of those earlier Anglican uh, tenets, distinctives, I was going to say convictions, uh, but you have Whitfield, who's much more influenced by Puritan heritage, who adopts a Calvinistic soteriology. And as we talked about on Tuesday, that represents a split now within this budding Methodist movement between Calvinistic Methodists and Arminian Wesleyan Methodists. And there are still some Calvinistic Methodists in Wales who trace their heritage all the way back to George Whitfield. And of course, the worldwide Methodist movement is largely composed of Wesleyan, Arminian Methodists, though in the 20th century, many of the Methodist congregations went liberal, along with mainline Presbyterian and Baptist and, and Episcopalian congregations as well. We'll get there when we get to the 20th century. Another theological distinctive that characterizes John Wesley, and one that we would not agree with, is Wesley's teaching of perfectionism and this by the way is still one of the major distinctives of like the nazarene denomination which the nazarene denomination is a direct offshoot of wesleyan holiness movement which is an offshoot of wesleyan methodism so there are still congregations today that teach this same thing john wesley essentially taught that it was possible in this life for a Christian to reach a state of sanctification whereby the Christian never willfully sins anymore. So Michael Haken will explain this for us. For all the good that John Wesley did, he was a lightning rod for controversy. His propagation of evangelical Arminianism, what we already talked about, for example, did much to antagonize Whitfield and other key evangelical leaders. Equally serious an error was his commitment to the doctrine of Christian perfection. Convinced that scripture taught this doctrine, John Wesley was determined to publish it to the world. Yet unlike his clear presentation of the heart of the gospel, his teaching about perfection is somewhat murky and at times difficult to pin down. He always contended that he was not advocating sinless perfection, Yet he could talk about the one who experienced this blessing as having sin separated from his soul and having a full deliverance from sin. Such perfection freed the person from evil thoughts and evil tempers. As he wrote to the Baptist authoress Anne Dutton, this blessing brings freedom from all faintness, coldness, and unevenness of love both towards God and our neighbor and hence from wandering of heart and duty and from every motion and affection that is contrary to the law of love. All of this, Haken says, sounds very much like sinless perfection. Despite Wesley's protest, we do not say that we have no sin in us, but that we do not commit sin. So again, it's the idea that you never willfully commit any sin. It is curious that Wesley himself never claimed to have experienced this, what he sometimes called the second blessing. But Wesley's teaching carried enormous weight in the century after his death in 1791. It formed the heart and substance of the transatlantic holiness movement of the 19th century, and using the terminology of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Wesleyan perfectionism prepared the soil for the emergence of Pentecostalism in this century. Now, we'll talk more about the history of Pentecostalism, but it is true that John Wesley's successor, a man named John Fletcher, used the language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit to refer to this second blessing experience, which was the language that John Wesley himself used. And when we get into the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, with Charles Parham in Topeka, Kansas, the beginning of Pentecostalism. Charles Parham is a Wesleyan holiness pastor who then associates speaking in tongues 
with this second blessing experience and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So John Wesley is not a Pentecostal, but John Wesley's errant soteriology when it came to his view of sanctification leads eventually and subsequently generations later to the development of really Pentecostal theology in which speaking in tongues is associated with this second blessing experience. There's a lesson in this, I think, that sometimes certain, um, for lack of a better word, aberrant theological ideas, even if they're not fully formed in one generation, they can lead to even worse and more aberrant theological ideas in subsequent generations. So more on that when we get to the history of Pentecostalism in the early 20th century. But yes, question. Uh, What was Wesley's teaching on perseverance? Yeah, Wesley taught that you could lose your salvation. So that was consistent with his Arminianism, uh, that it was possible for someone to fall away from the faith, to reject the faith and become apostate. And in that sense, Wesley would teach that it was possible for someone to have been saved and yet to then walk away and lose that salvation in some way. Uh, That's actually what Whitfield, in that letter that we read on Tuesday, what Whitfield was saying to Wesley is, how can you, on the one hand, teach that it's possible to lose your salvation, and on the other hand, teach that it's possible to reach a, a point of perfectionism in this life? Whitfield saw that as hopelessly inconsistent, but Wesley held to both uh, all the way to the end of his life. Now, it is interesting. Wesley never claimed to have reached this second blessing uh, experience in his own life, but he did teach that it was possible. And uh, he taught largely that it was possible in terms of some sort of what he called a crisis experience, that... A person would be living a life as a Christian for a period of years, and then through some sort of dramatic or traumatic experience, they would be quickly elevated to this higher plane of Christian living, wherein they never willfully sinned anymore. And of course, this is still a doctrine in the Nazarene church today, though it's always kind of ironic to me. There's, In fact, people have joked about the fact that Although Nazarene pastors claim sinless perfection, their wives know the truth (laughs) about those claims. So, uh, you know, biblically, we understand that progressive sanctification is something in which the Christian battles against sin and temptation for the entirety of their lives, and that perfection is something that takes place after death in glorification. Wesley taught that it was possible to experience some sort of moment in which you were elevated to this higher plane of perfectionism within this life. This will lead to what is called Keswick theology, deeper life theology. This fits in very nicely with 20th century non-lordship salvation theology. The idea that you can be a Christian for a long period of time and then subsequent to your conversion you actually become a disciple or you somehow enter the deeper life of Christian living or a higher plateau or even um, the idea of the carnal Christian who lives as a Christian for a long time but really is not following Christ until some point post-conversion. I think we would say no, Discipleship is part of true conversion, that true conversion includes repentance, which is a gift of God, the changing of a mind, which then produces fruits of repentance, and those fruits of repentance are evidence of discipleship. So Lordship Salvation would teach that um, people who claim to be Christians and yet live like the world need to do a, a serious heart examination to see whether or not that profession is really genuine. But it's interesting. We're starting to see some ideas now in this class that are still with us today as we're moving closer and closer and closer to the modern period of church history. And where do these ideas originate? Well, in this case, both the idea of perfectionism, second blessing, all of that stuff, and for the first time in English church history, an evangelical form of Arminianism both originate with John Wesley. 
All right, so some of the things we've already said, Wesley's designated successor, John Fletcher, would refer to the second blessing experience as a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Thus, within the Wesleyan holiest movement, the baptism of the Holy Spirit became connected to a post-conversion crisis experience, which resulted in relative perfection or a deeper life commitment. Later leaders like Charles Finney would associate the baptism of the Holy Spirit with ecstatic experiences and unutterable gushings, and all of this lays or paves the way for the Pentecostal association of tongues with the baptism of the Spirit and the entrance into a deeper form of the Christian life. And Charles Parham, Agnes Osmond, 1901, in Topeka, Kansas, when that movement started, they associated speaking in tongues with baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is part of the reason that within traditional Pentecostal circles, cessationism is seen as so dangerous because they believe that cessationists are actually quenching or inhibiting the Spirit's ability to do a sanctifying work in the lives of believers. Those who have not spoken in tongues in traditional Pentecostal circles are viewed as those who are still in that carnal Christian phase and have never truly and fully surrendered themselves to the deeper life of following Christ. But we'll get into more of that when we get into the 20th century. All right, in 1741, just to connect something that we'll talk about with more detail when we talk about the life and impact of Jonathan Edwards, 1741, we have Edwards preaching his very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in Enfield, Connecticut, and many people responding to that message. 1743, Wesley publishes an earnest appeal to men of reason and religion, which is a defense of Methodism. And so we're starting to have some of these initial documents as this new movement, what will become a denomination, is getting going. And Whitfield, uh, now the split between these two men is really settled. Whitfield helps establish the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist Association and serves as its first moderator. So we have two branches now of Methodism. One is Arminian, and the other is Calvinistic. We talked a little bit on Tuesday about some of John Wesley's romantic interests. Uh, I know that it's kind of off topic for us to discuss something like this in the course of church history, but I mentioned that um, his relationship with Sophie Hopke, which of course ended in him having to leave the colony of Georgia and go back to England. We have now a second romantic interest of his with this young, uh, young lady, Grace Murray, and uh, I'm I'm not actually sure of all of the details of this particular relationship. What I do know is that John Wesley was, was very deeply interested in this young woman and his brother Charles, and I think also to some extent George Whitfield as a friend was involved in some of this as well. But Charles was convinced that if Wesley uh, got married, that it would slow down and inhibit his ministry. And so Charles convinced John not to get married to this young lady. Somehow Charles was involved in breaking up this relationship. Wesley, as J.B. Wakeley says, Wesley felt the disappointment most keenly. He poured out the sorrows of his heart, not only in prose, but in verse. In one of his letters, he says, the sons of Zeruiah, reference to the Old Testament, were too strong for me. The whole world fought against me, but above all, my own familiar friend. So he's reference to Charles there for the way in which Charles ended this. Then was fulfilled, son of man, behold, I take from you the earnest desire of your eyes at a stroke. Yet shall not you lament, neither shall your tears run down. The fatal irrecoverable stroke was struck on Thursday last. I think Charles, if I remember, uh, that I think he was involved in arranging for her to get married to somebody else. And, and John is writing this after that wedding. Yesterday I saw my friend that was and him to whom she is sacrificed. So uh, things are not going well for John Wesley in this particular 
area of his life. And um, th that will become significant in 1751, just a couple years later, because John will finally get married, but he will get married to a woman named Mary Vazil, seven years younger than he was, a widow with four children, and it's going to prove disastrous. Their marriage was not a happy one, and it ended with her leaving him. According to historical report, uh, report she was short-tempered and jealous of any interaction that Wesley would have with any other woman. So in 1755, John and Mary separate, and John Wesley actually is separated from his wife for the rest of his ministry life. Now at this point, people always have questions about, well, what are the implications of that for John Wesley's ministry? I don't know specifically the implications for him in his own lifetime, but I do think that there's a lesson for us in this regard that as those who are called to be ministers of the gospel, being above reproach and having a reputation as one who is honoring to Christ in every area of life, it is just extremely important that we, for those of us who are married, that we honor our wives and care for them and shepherd them in a way that honors Christ and is reflective of Christ's care for the church. Thinking of Ephesians 5. And I think Wesley's difficulties in this area serve as a lesson for us and a warning for us that we would not want our reputations damaged because of our own neglect of those of the spouse that the Lord has seen fit to give us. So I don't know all of the specifics. Uh, I know that John Wesley was extremely busy with the ministry that God had given him. I don't I I'm sure that it was something that involved um, areas of weakness on his part and areas of weakness on her part. But in any case, it's, it's kind of, I think, kind of sad and sobering that part of John Wesley's legacy is that this was an area of, um, I don't know, an area in which we almost... Uh, have to question the qualification for ministry. And uh, that's something that you would never want said of your own legacy, either in your lifetime or in subsequent generations. And yet it is a footnote in John Wesley's own ministry. God used him in an amazing way in spite of his weaknesses. I understand and realize all of that. But I feel like it's important to emphasize with you men that, look, the reality is, and John Wesley aside, the reality is that you can lose your ministry and keep your marriage, but you cannot lose your marriage and keep your ministry. So keep that in mind if you're single and thinking about getting married, or if you already are married, keep that in mind in the way that you interact with your wife and care for her, even in the midst of seminary and in the midst of future ministry. Yes, sir. Aaron. Yeah, Charles Wesley, I believe, was married. Um, well, that's my understanding. I need to go back and uh, survey and dig a little deeper into some of these details. Uh, it's just one of those kind of sad and sobering footnotes in all of this that there's a lot of exciting things going on and a lot of ways in which God used John Wesley powerfully to accomplish really incredible things. And yet at the same time, it's, it's never fun to have to um, include as part of the historical record, which is what it is, the fact that uh, Wesley's own ministry was, I think, greatly tainted by both fa failed romantic interests in Georgia and then later in England and a marriage that turned south very quickly. I mean, four years is not a long time. Yep. When you, uh, you said this is why I'm at, I didn't get it. Uh, talk about what the origins of 
Methodist main again, you said the new method of uh, Yeah, Methodism when they started the Holy Club at Oxford, the dozen or so students who were part of it, they went to such extreme measures in terms of self-discipline and the exercise of kind of the external spiritual disciplines that the other students began to make fun of them for their extreme methods of pursuing holiness. And so they began to call them Methodists in a pejorative, mocking way. And uh, these students started to refer to themselves then as Methodists. And I think, you know, over the course of subsequent generations, Methodism not only refers to methods of practicing the spiritual disciplines, but could also be included in that a methodical approach to all of life, including studying the scriptures in a methodical way and uh, approaching personal holiness and the pursuit of holiness in a methodical way. So that's where the term originated, and it was something that started as a pejorative and then became the label for the movement. All right, there's uh, pictures of Mary Vazile and John Wesley. <laughs> well, he definitely has kind of a sad look on his face. So, just a joke. How the struggles within the Methodist movement um, to the way it began, because it was pre-salvation of Charles Wesley, right? So they started with these methods that were, you know, bringing about a personal holiness without the Spirit. And it seems like throughout that whole denomination, they've constantly interjected, you know, a self-righteousness to, to an extent. Um, well... In modern times, I would probably attribute that emphasis more to the influence of the social gospel in the 20th century on the Methodist denomination than I would to the origins of Methodism at the Holy Club at Pembroke College in Oxford. Because after their conversion, the emphasis shifted in their preaching from just these external disciplines to inward heart transformation. In fact, Wesley, John Wesley, preaches a well-known sermon called The Almost Christian, which is the idea that a person can do all the right stuff on the outside and look like a Christian, and yet if nothing has happened on the inside in terms of true regeneration, then they're not actually saved. So there's a shift in their emphasis, a shift in their thinking, and it's a result of their own regeneration that changes their emphasis really to focus on being born again as the catalyst that must take place first before a life is transformed. Otherwise, you're nothing more than a Pharisee. There's Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer. And uh, of course, they're wearing wigs in these paintings. You guys all understand that in the 18th century, because you've seen enough of American history, George Washington and John Adams and everybody else, from the late 18th century that everybody is wearing wigs because it was a formal way to dress in public. And so these are formal, you know, you sit for a portrait, you're gonna wear your best stuff. And uh, so that's not their actual hair. I don't know if that helps alleviate your concerns about <laughs> their marriage, but in any case. <clears throat> All right, as we move a little bit forward here, uh, in 1769, George Whitfield takes his seventh and final trip to the colonies. It's a difficult voyage. He arrives in Charleston and preaches for 10 days to large congregations. This would have been his 13th transatlantic boat trip, if you count there and back again. So seven times total that he came to the American colonies. He will stay in the American colonies. He will die in the American colonies. In 1770, he began a final tour of preaching, starting in Philadelphia, preaching as often as his now ailing body would permit. And then in September of 1770, he preached a final sermon in New Hampshire. And this is kind of cool. He preaches his final sermon, and then the next morning he goes home to heaven. And I think that's... You know, that's another lesson that we learned from church history is 
you don't have in church history faithful pastors who retire from ministry. Now, I don't have a problem with the idea of a guy who's been faithful in his church taking some retirement and stepping back from the pulpit as long as he's still involved in faithful ministry to some extent. We recognize that retirement is something that pertains to the American view of occupation, not to God's view of ministry in the church. But it is fascinating, I think, to see some of these faithful pastors who they preach up until the very end. Calvin, you know, he gets carried to his pulpit essentially on his bed because he can't make it there because he's going to preach. And George Whitfield, his health is ailing, but he is going to preach. And he preaches his final sermon. Even Luther preaches the Sunday before he dies that later that week. So this idea of retirement is an American idea. It's not a church history idea. And the greatest and most faithful and most well-known of the preachers throughout church history were those who preached all the way up until their final moments. Was it his final sermon because he died, or was it that was his plan, was this is my final sermon? It was his final sermon because he died the next day. Um, <clears throat> The funeral, the memorial service, is held back in England, and John Wesley, who because they remain friends, even though they're no longer ministry partners, they're still brothers in Christ, even though they disagree sharply on a Reformed view of soteriology and election and an Arminian view, John Wesley preaches the funeral back in England, where 6,000 people gather so we read of Whitfield's legacy then that it is estimated that throughout his life Whitfield preached more than 18,000 formal sermons of which 78 have been published. So we have less than 100 of Whitfield sermons that have survived. And again, I think that's largely due to the extemporaneous nature of his preaching. It makes it difficult to publish notes if there aren't very many notes or it makes it difficult even to transcribe sermons if they're preached out in a wilderness setting where people are just kind of gathering to listen. In addition to his work in America and England, he made 15 journeys to Scotland, two to Ireland, one each to Bermuda, Gibraltar, and the Netherlands. He is considered to be one of the fathers of evangelicalism. He was the best-known preacher in England and America in the 18th century. And because he traveled through all of the American colonies and drew great crowds and media coverage, he was one of the most widely recognized public figures in America before George Washington. So, in fact, one of the... Um, it might be Dalimore, but one of the biographies of Whitfield talks about the fact that he was in the early and to mid-18th century, the most recognizable figure in the American colonies. Of course, before George Washington and the Revolutionary War. So Michael Haken says, This revival had come to England, and to that revival and its confluent streams in Wales, Scotland, and British North America, no man contributed more than Whitfield. Over the 34 years between his conversion and his death in 1770, it is calculated that he preached around 18,000 sermons. Actually, if one includes all of the talks that he gave, he probably spoke about 1,000 times a year during his ministry. Whew. Moreover, many of his sermons were delivered to massive congregations that numbered 10,000 or so, some to audiences possibly as large as 20,000. This all in a day before electronic amplification and at a time in which he is preaching outside. Now, that's amazing. Uh, you know, we don't have automobiles and freeways creating noise, but there's still plenty of farm animals and people and everything else making all sorts of noise outside, and yet here's Whitfield preaching to crowds of 10 to 20,000. Here's Dalimore. We must also inquire what were Whitfield's accomplishments. Throughout his lifetime and for several years after his death, he was known as the leader and founder of Methodism. Isn't that interesting? Here, Whitfield is regarded as the founder of Methodism. Yet, as we have seen, he willingly relinquished his position as the head of the Calvinistic branch of the movement and served thereafter as simply the servant of all. Whitfield also taught the evangelical world a new manner of preaching. In a day when ministers in general were lacking in zeal and were apologetic in preaching, he preached the gospel with aggressive zeal and undaunted courage. 
He set mankind on fire wherever he went, and numerous men, learning from his example, began to preach after the same manner. For a hundred years, his style of direct application was practiced in the overwhelming majority of Protestant pulpits. So we actually have a development even in the history of preaching with Whitfield. He likewise held to the fundamentals of the faith. He believed in the inerrancy of the Bible, the deity of Christ, virgin birth, atoning death, and literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that salvation is not by works, but by grace. These truths he declared so consistently that they gradually filtered into a vast multitude of consciences, and for at least a century after his death, they were preached in the greater number of churches in both Britain and America. He initiated almost all of the 18th century revival's enterprises, open-air preaching, the use of lay preachers, the publishing of a magazine, and the organization of an association, the holding of a conference. By his 13 crossings of the ocean, he provided the international scope of the movement. Among his accomplishments, there must be recognized the host of men and women he led to Jesus Christ and the large part he played in this great work of revival on both sides of the Atlantic. So there we have just a glimpse into Whitfield's legacy. Yeah, two songs. I think Trevor had Trevor? Um, if we were to compare the, um, their ministries, Wesley and Whitfield, as to where they preached, would we see an intersection of Whitfield preaching at a location that Wesley would have been at as well um, prior to or after their, their post-salvation? Well, yes and no. I mean, initially they did some work together in England, but... Uh, Wesley only made one trip to the British colonies in North America, whereas Whitfield made a total of seven trips. So Whitfield was much more of an international speaker and preacher than Wesley was. Wesley, Whitfield, and when it comes to the history of Methodism, Whitfield is remembered as the great preacher of Methodism. Wesley also was a preacher and he preached outdoors, but he never had the same gifts as Whitfield did. I mean, let's be honest, few people in history have had the same gifts that Whitfield has had. In terms of organization, however, Wesley was the great organizer of Methodism, which is why Wesleyan Methodism became the predominant branch of Methodism around the world. So Wesley was a great organizer. Um, so yeah, there was some overlap, I suppose, in England, but outside of England, it was almost exclusively Whitfield. I was going to ask, since Whitfield, are they, con are they just saying that they considered him the founder of, Met of uh, Methodism, or was he actually the founder of Methodism? I think the most accurate way to say it would be to say that jo uh, George Whitfield was one of the founders of Methodism. I think if we're going to be fully accurate, we have to say that John and Charles Wesley were co-founders of Methodism with George Whitfield. In the sense of the Holy Club and the Methodists, where that name came from, it was technically Charles who started that club. But in terms of the first person that God saved in that movement, whom then was put in charge of that movement while John and Charles came to Georgia for their mission trip, even before they were converted, it was George. So, you know, how do we sort all that out? I mean, they're co-founders. Now, if we look at Methodism and say, well, what are the different distinctions within Methodism? George Whitfield is the founder of the Calvinistic branch of Methodism. John Wesley is the founder of the Arminian branch of Methodism. Uh, maybe I missed this Tuesday, but Methodist is derived from, is it a biblical term that they use it to? No, it's, it's derived from the extreme methods the extreme um, exercises uh, and pursuit of spiritual discipline that these guys did even at a time when they weren't saved. So they're, they're going to extreme measures to try and be godly, and the other students mockingly called them Methodists because of their extreme methods. All right. Um. <clears throat> Later ministry, just a couple other dates that are, I suppose, of interest. Just to connect this into broader Western history, we have Beethoven born in 1770, same year that Whitfield died. 
1775 is when the American Revolution began. Of course, 1776 uh, is the Declaration of Independence. 1771, Francis Asbury sails to America. He's a second-generation Methodist. You remember, Asbury is the one who becomes an itinerant evangelist in the American colonies, and he was notable in Knowles' book because he's the one who logged over 300,000 miles on horseback, riding from place to place to preach to the colonists. Methodism will be extremely successful in the American colonies because outdoor preaching works really well in a place where there's not a lot of developed infrastructure. It was also working well in England even where there was that developed infrastructure. But especially in North America, as North American colonists and then uh, pioneers start to push west, you don't have a lot of churches and a lot of developed settlements yet this open-air preaching is going to become very popular for being a way to reach those kind of pioneers living on those western borders. Methodists in America number about 5,000 in 1776, and um, they will become the fastest-growing denomination in America over the next 150 years. In 1778, George Whitfield had started a magazine that was related to the evangelical movement. John Wesley will start his own uh, magazine related to the Methodist movement, which he actually calls the Arminian Magazine, and it promotes many of his Arminian soteriological distinctives. In 1788, his younger brother Charles dies, and finally in 1791, John dies. So John is born first in 1703. Charles is born second in what was it, 1707, 1708, right in there. And then uh, George was born last in 1714. Fast forward, George is the first to go to heaven, 1770, Charles second, and John third. Today there are approximately 70 million Methodists worldwide. So this became a massive movement. Unfortunately, most of the Methodists alive today went liberal in the 20th century. And those who didn't are predominantly Wesleyan, Arminian in their soteriological perspective. Here's John Wesley near the end of his life. And there on his deathbed with some of his followers, his Methodist followers, huddled around him. All right, I want to talk just a little bit about the Wesley's legacy. We've talked about Whitfield's legacy. Uh, you know, and, and just going back to that for a moment, thinking about Whitfield's legacy, I think Whitfield's legacy stands out for us in church history as a pastor-preacher, preacher would be the better word, as a preacher and an evangelist. Whitfield is known for his preaching and specifically his evangelistic preaching. And when you see all of the different trips that he took to all of those different areas and islands and the American colonies that he was willing to get on boats, I mean, it takes months on a boat. Talk about severe seasickness and days before Dramamine. And you're going to do that in order to take the gospel to a ragtag bunch of British colonists living in the New World. And you're going to do it seven different times. That's some pretty significant commitment. And it is because Whitfield was convinced, as we talked about on Tuesday, this is his Calvinism motivating his evangelism, but Whitfield was convinced that the harvest was full of God's elect, and it was his joy to go out and discover the elect through the preaching of the gospel. And so, again, he saw his Calvinism not as a deterrent or as an inhibition to evangelism, but rather as a great motivation to evangelism because he was excited to know that his ministry, he knew his ministry was going to be successful because he knew God was going to work in people's hearts. And he knew that God has his elect in the world, and it was just his joy as a minister to go and discover where they were. Wesley's legacy, a little bit different, obviously. Um, this book on John and Charles Wesley, I don't know that I would necessarily recommend the whole book. It's written by a guy who 
Uh, I think he might be kind of a mainline Methodist, so some of his conclusions are a little bit off. But when it comes to him describing the legacy of John and Charles Wesley, I thought that he did a nice job, and so that's why I included the quote here. He says, uh, this is Paul Chocote. John and Charles Wesley influenced Christian thought and practice more than most people realize. At least six elements comprise the Wesley's living legacy. So he has these six elements then. Number one, commitment. From their parents, John and Charles Wesley learned the importance of wholehearted dedication to God. There could be no half measures for them. One of the greatest dangers to the Christian faith, as the title of John's sermon, The Almost Christian, indicates, is anything that falls short of full commitment. I would add that it was full commitment based on internal heart change, but in any case. God gave us God's all. We are called to offer back the whole of ourselves, all we are and all we have as a living sacrifice to God. A second area, orthodoxy. We generally think of orthodoxy as right belief, but the roots of the word actually mean right praise. The Wesleys sought to praise God with every aspect of their being. Head and heart and hands all worked together to praise the God of love. Perhaps this is why the singing of hymns was so important to them both. And of course, Charles wrote 6,000 hymns. Singing involves the whole of who we are. They viewed life as a song to be sung to the praise of God in gratitude for all that God has done. Spirituality, a third area of contribution. By spirituality, here I simply mean a disciplined devotional life. Virtually every day of the Wesleys' lives began and ended with a recitation of morning prayer and evening prayer out of the Book of Common Prayer. So that again, they're still Anglican. Prayer framed each day. The classic spiritual disciplines from Bible study and the Lord's table to helping the poor and waging peace shaped their lives. Waging peace is kind of an interesting phrase. I think that might be a little indication into more of the author's modern perspective, but in any case. Another area, a fourth area of contribution, mission. One of the most crucial insights that John and Charles carried with them throughout their lives was that the gospel, the good news of God's love revealed in Jesus, is a message for everyone. One of Charles's most famous hymns, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, which again was what he wrote on the one-year anniversary of his conversion, is nothing other than a mission manifest. My gracious master and my God assist me to proclaim to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. And we all know that hymn well. So by mission here, we're talking about missions, missionary activity, evangelism. Order. Is it any wonder that the movement initiated by the Wesleys should come to be known as Methodism? It is in large measure due to John's organizational genius that the evangelical revival developed into such a powerful religious awakening in his own day. But for the Wesleys, more than anything else, the disciplined ordering of life made it possible for them to honor Christ in all the activities of their days. And then finally... He puts this one sixth in terms of the contributions that the Wesleys made. And I actually think this is one that I want, want to emphasize the most is their contribution in the area of Scripture. Not, of course, in adding to the Scriptures, but in emphasizing the Scriptures. John Wesley once described himself as a man of one book. The Wesleyan revival was, for all intents and purposes, a rediscovery of the Bible. It was to Holy Scripture that John and Charles returned time and time again for inspiration, for focus, for life. Now again, consider that this author is kind of a modern, uh, pseudo-evangelical talking about these things. For him to acknowledge that this was their focus is a big deal. For him to say that they returned to it for inspiration and focus in life it's a little bit lame. Uh, they return to it as the authority for everything that they did in terms of their ministry and in terms of the gospel that they based both this life and the next on. So I, I, don't, wanna, I don't want the shallowness of this particular author's perspective to taint 
the true heart conviction that characterized these men. But it is true. Scripture was at the center of their thinking. They had an insatiable appetite for God's word. And that word shaped virtually everything they did. They helped others discover that this book was not simply dead words from long ago, but God's living word for us today. And I, I think that is a, is a helpful way to end even this lecture on Whitfield and the Wesleys, to bring it back to the same thing that I was emphasizing with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and the Anabaptists and all of those great names that we talked about during the Puritan era. What is it that characterizes these people as Christians? It is their commitment to the authority of the scriptures in every part of life and ministry, and then the preaching of a gospel that comes out of the text of God's word. So if the lordship of Christ, the lordship of the, not the lordship, the lordship of Christ, the authority of his word, if he is Lord, his word is the authority, the then authority of the gospel that is found in that word as the only true gospel. And so we have, again, in this evangelical revival, a recovery and a reiteration of those great Reformation truths, which were not invented in the 16th century, but rediscovered in the 16th century, and which every generation needs to rediscover if they hope to see revival in their own lifetime. Solus Christus, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, and of course all of it for the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria.